0: Hallelujah. Come on in. We have been making our way through the Gospel of John, chapter by chapter, and what I've tried to do is I've tried to take each chapter and kind of ascertain what I think the major theme is in that chapter and handle it accordingly. So I want us to look at John chapter 15. If you turn there in your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, it will actually be on the wall or on the screens in front of you. Uh, John chapter 15 and beginning reading in verse 1, if you'd follow along. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in Me that does not bear fruit He takes away, and every branch that bears fruit He prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in Me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in Me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in Me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without Me you can do nothing. Do you you get an idea, by the way, of what the theme might be in this chapter? Abiding. If anyone does not abide in Me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they're burned. If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full." Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. And notice the transition that just made here. He starts off by talking about abiding in Him. This is God's heart. Is that we would abide in Him and He would abide in us. And that abiding would result in fruitfulness. But He now takes it a step farther and He actually says, we are the friends of God. And I know we could park you for it, but I want you to think about it for a minute. How many of you feel like God is your friend? How many of you live your life that way? Not just you know it theologically. How many of you actually think that way? When something goes wrong, what's the first thought in your mind? When things don't go the way you think they should, how do you feel about God? Because that betrays what your real theology is. And here he says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give you these things I command you, that you love one another. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. Your word is living and active. Your word has power to it greater than any word that we or I certainly can say. And I'm asking You to indwell and breathe upon Your Word as each one has heard it today. Let it become implanted in our hearts that we might, in fact, allow that seed to grow within us that it would bear fruit and that we would grow up in all things unto You who is the Head, Christ Jesus. We ask it in the name of our Father and His Son and the Holy Spirit amen okay to me the key of this whole chapter is found in the word abiding we're called to abide because only in abiding in him do we become fruitful and that's just logical if you think about it I mean if you walk around this area in upstate New York in the fall you're going to see orchards of apple trees and these trees will be loaded with apples But if you look carefully, you're also going to see some apples that are on the ground. Some look very tasty, some look like they're still fine, some not so much. But if you keep walking through the orchard, you will ultimately also see that there are actual branches of the trees that have broken off and fallen to the ground. And upon those branches might actually still be some apples that are attached to the branch. And so some of them look good, some of them not so good. But the truth is, those that are on the branch and those that are on the ground are ultimately rotting because they're no longer attached to the tree. And Jesus says the only way we're going to be fruitful, and to be fruitful means that we're actually tasty in nature. We have things in us that are good that others can eat of and receive nourishment. The only way that's going to happen is if we stay rooted or abiding in Him. Now, all throughout this chapter, I believe it would be possible that you could read it exactly wrong. You could have read every verse that I just read and you could come to a wrong conclusion. Exact opposite of what Jesus meant. You could read it like it's saying this, well, Jesus said, if I want to be His friend, then I better obey Jesus said, it's only as I obey that the Father will love me. i better start producing some fruit or as my grandson Caleb likes to say, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble with God. Because God wants fruit. If you don't got fruit, He's going to cut you off. And you can read it just like that. And I want to suggest to you that is the exact opposite of what Jesus said and what He meant. That is not the heart of the Scripture. That kind of view is virtually the opposite or contrary to the rest of the Bible which says that our position in Christ is not based upon our performance. It's based upon Christ's performance. And to read any portion of Scripture, any portion, other than with that as your foundation is going to lead you astray. It's going to lead you wrong. He says in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's all of Him. It's His grace. And it's all as we abide in Him and He abides in us. So what do I think it's really saying? I think it's really saying that if you will abide in God, if you will spend your time living in Him and allow Him to live in you, falling more and more in love with Him, then the natural outcome of all of that is be fruit. You're going to have fruit in your life. Is there a work involved in abiding? Yeah, there is. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a performance work, though. It's a positioning work. It's, it's a work that the writer of Hebrews says, let us therefore labor to enter into the rest, or into the abiding. It's a work of faith. It's actually believing that what God has said about you is true. And living your life that way. Instead of living your life based upon what we often feel like when we get up in the morning. Um, as I prepared for this message, uh, I, I felt good about it. I felt like, okay, this is a word from God to us. Prepared throughout last week and this week for it. Felt good about it. I woke up this morning and I thought, I don't want to preach this anymore. This feels so flat. Just forget it. But if I were to live my life solely based upon feelings, on any given day, isn't it true that you can wake up not feeling so great about life? And that's the exact opposite of how God intends that we live our lives. We're to live our lives by faith in Him, which means that we abide in Him. Now, the way in which I kind of want you to get this is uh, I'm going to actually do a couple of different places, but I want you to follow me with this. This represents, if you could, this, this spot right here represents man who is made in the image of God before the fall, man who had perfect intimacy and relationship with God. This is him. This is man in all of his glory such that Tozer says, I believe, that if you were to actually see man as he really is created, you would be tempted to bow down and worship him. The glory is so great. This is man in all of his glory as he worships and abides in God. So this is man pre-fall. This, however, is man who chose to no longer listen to the Word of God but to make his own choices. This is man after the fall. Everyone has gone his own way. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone has been a led astray. We each do what seems right in our own eyes. This is us. This is us prior to Christ. On the other side, however, this is us who have encountered Christ. Jesus comes. He shares the Word of His life with us We receive that implanted Word which, according to Peter, is an imperishable, it's an indestructible seed. And that's planted in our heart. And we are changed forever. We are a new creation. That's us in Christ. And this is how we're supposed to live. But I would suggest to you that most of us still live like we're living back here. We live as if what Christ did for us accomplished nothing. Our salvation is set. We're going to heaven but the rest of life doesn't seem to look that way to us at all. We live as though Jesus did nothing. So many of us have reversed the cause and effect relationship between good works and fruitfulness and our standing in God. Or another way of saying that is, we have made the performance that we give the basis of our position in God or our personal identity. If we do well, if we're kinder, we're more honest, if we finally stop swearing and lying, then we feel better about our relationship with God and we call that fruitfulness. And I understand, by the way, I understand that feeling really well because there's not a one of us here that doesn't feel like, if I, if I had a really good day, i feel better about things in God. But I want to suggest to you that whether you have a good day or whether you have a bad day, your position in God doesn't change one iota. Because if you're in God, you're in. That's just the truth of His Word. According to Ephesians 2, we were not merely lost. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Before Christ, you are dead. You are helpless. You have no hope. But into the grave came a voice of the Son of God declaring that if you will believe in Me, you can be raised from the dead. And we believed. And we are no longer dead. We are now placed in Him. That sound entered our grave and tore up all of the ground, lifted our casket out of the ground, and we are now made alive in Christ. And what most of us did is we would say we asked Jesus into our heart, and that's true. But what most of us don't realize is at the very time that we asked Jesus into our heart, God asked us into His heart. So it's Christ in us, but it's also us in Him. That's part of the nature of what we're doing. The question that we deal with isn't really about our performance. The question ought to be about our position. I am in Him no matter how I feel or what I do. A great example is this. This this is my Bible and, and this in my Bible is my business card. I don't have many of these. In fact, I had to go into the secretary's office to find one. Uh, I don't have them anymore because I figure if you know me, you know me. If you don't know me, it doesn't matter what card I have. But this is my card. This represents me. So when people come and say, who are you? I can say, here I am. My name is Chris Lonneville. I give them my card. Now this is my card and I want my card to go with my Bible. My Bible represents for me the actual presence and person of God. This is my card. I want my card in the Bible. It's in the Bible. It looks good. Everything is going well. But if I take my card and I rip my card a little bit and I do something and I rimple it all up, that is still me and this is what I feel about myself. But if this right here is still in my Bible, then it's still in God whether or not I feel good about it or not. Because I am in God. That's what He has done for me. I am in Him. I am in the Beloved, as the Song of Solomon says. My security is not based upon my behavior. My security has already been established by Christ's behavior. Now, there's a short story. In fact, it's probably the greatest story that's ever been told, in my opinion. It's the story that we call the story of the prodigal son. We know it well, right? But you need to understand the culture of the time in order to really understand the story of the prodigal son. In that day and age, it says the prodigal son's father was a wealthy man. Uh, That doesn't mean that he necessarily had a lot of money. In fact, most often wealth was not measured by how much money you had. It was measured by your property, by your goods, by your lands, by your servants. So a wealthy man would have all kinds of crops, all kinds of animals. He'd have herds of cows and sheep and goats. He would have a lot of servants. He would have a lot of property. He would have a lot of uh, buildings on his property. In fact, a wealthy man would even build a town in order for his servants to have a place from which they could get all kinds of goods and services that they would need for their livelihood. And so... This man that is being told about in The Prodigal Son is probably just like that man. And the younger son comes to his father and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. And I want my inheritance now. And in that day and age, the elder brother would have gotten twice the inheritance. So he would have gotten two thirds, and the younger son would have gotten one third. So he says to his dad, I want one third of my inheritance right now. I want my inheritance. How is the father going to do that? He doesn't have money in his pocket. He's going to have to sell property. Sell houses. He's going to have to sell off his sheep. He's going to have to sell his servants. So that what the son was asking would not just affect the father. It wouldn't just affect his older brother. It would affect the whole town. And in that day and age, they had an interesting concept. They had this idea that if you did something that brought shame, embarrassment, and bad things to our town, they had the ability to actually make a decree, an official decree, so that as you would do something that they didn't like, they could kick you out of the town. And as you were leaving, the townsmen would stand behind you and they would begin to cry out these words, Kazaza! Kazaza! Which literally means Cut off, never to return. That's what it means in the Greek. Cut off, never to return. So this young man said, I want my inheritance. And he took it and he went off into a far country. You follow the story? What was the father doing the whole time the son was in the far country? Watching and waiting. Just watching and waiting. Hoping that his son would one day finally come home. And the Scripture says that the son came to his senses. We, we make that like he had some sort of revelation. I think all that the son did was he realized, I'm hungry. And people at my dad's house eat better. So how about I go back there? So he begins to make his way back, and the whole way, he's rehearsing a speech. The father's home watching. And the father sees him. And what's the father do? He runs to him. Why? Because he loves him but I think there's more than that. Because the hearers of that story realized that when Jesus was telling it, He left out a part. The hearers of that story knew that what the Son had done had brought shame upon the whole town. And therefore, when He left, Jesus should have said, they cried out, Kazaza! But they didn't. So they're waiting to hear this. They're waiting for the story to come to its rightful conclusion. The father, seeing the son coming, gets up and he runs to his son because he wants to get to his son before anybody in that town can come out into the street and say, you're not welcome back here. He says, I love my son and I want my son to come home. He knew that if he didn't get there first, the town could make an official decree that even he could not break. And he wanted to get there first. One last point that is important for you to know in the story is in that culture, elderly, wealthy gentlemen never ran. Unlike in our culture where you know you could be very wealthy and still be a runner. In their culture, part of the sign of your wealth was your dignity, and part of your dignity was you would never run. The other part, which is really interesting, is a wealthy man would never show his legs. It was just considered inappropriate. But at their time, in that culture, most wealthy people wore longer robes. Maybe not quite to the ground. The feet would show, but that would be it. They they wore wealthy, embroidered robes. But the father ran. How do you run with a robe like that on? You pick it up and you tuck it in your belt and you run. So here is the father running to the son, which is already an issue of shame in their culture, and he tucks in his robe, and he runs and he shows his legs, and in effect he's saying, I'm going to outshame my son. He says, I'm going to get there before anybody else can get there. I am going to say to the town people, put the shame on me. I can handle it. Don't put it on him. Now, that's the story of the prodigal son. Who is the story really about, though? What is that story that Jesus told really about? And? Us. What he's really saying is in your life, the Father has outshamed shame, the Father tucked his robe. In his belt, and he ran for all he's worth with bare legs and said, I don't care what I look like. I don't care if all the world says what you're doing is crazy. These are my children, and I'm going to outshame the shame that rests upon them. Now, to get back to our story, go back to John chapter 15. While you're turning there, let me ask you what was the prodigal's position before he left the father's household? What was his official status? What was that? He was a son. What was his official status when he was in the pig pen? What was that, Andy? He was a son. What was he when he came back? He's a son no matter what. Get that in your mind. You are a son or a daughter no matter what. That's how the father sees you. It's not a matter of whether you're playing in the pig pen. Sometimes you have. Admit it. You've done stupid things. You've looked at sin. You've entertained sin. And you've gone after it. But the whole time, if you're in Him and He's in you, you can't change your position. You can't change your status. You can change how you feel. You can change how you look because you can begin to smell a little bit like a pig. But you're still a son or a daughter of God. There's a, a... theology that I I wanted to try to help you catch. So this is a little bit more of an involved uh, message, but I wanted you to catch. There's a theology called the bounded set. Uh, If you could put that up there. Thank you. And in the bounded set, it's kind of like, think about a box. Uh, Do we have the box up there? Okay, thank you. In the bounded set, it's all about either you're in or you're out of the box. And a lot of people view life this way. And I have to suggest to you, a lot of Christians and a lot of churches function this way. In the bounded set, you're either in or you're out. So keep that in your mind. Are you in or are you out? Okay? And in, to be in, there are certain criteria that you have to have. The first criteria is this. You have to believe as we believe. You have to be able to say the same thing. You have to believe what we believe. You, know, you have a whole statement of faith. Do you believe what we believe? If you believe what we believe, then it's okay. And some churches believe different things. Some churches believe that you know, uh, Jesus was born of a virgin. Some other churches say, no, that's not as important. You don't have to have believe that to be in with us. But you must, in order to be a part of us, you must believe what I believe. The second part of this is you must behave as we behave. We have a certain criteria. You know, in our church, we wear suits. Okay, you guys know where you are? You're not in. You must behave as we behave. You must do things the way we do them. We have a certain order to how we do things. And we don't want you... You know, when I ask a question, it's a rhetorical question, that doesn't mean you should answer it. Get this right. You must behave as we behave. And then the third thing is, you must serve as we serve. And by that I mean, there are... Priorities. There are values that every place, every church has. For some churches, it's all about missions. For others, it's about titles like deacon. I want to be the head deacon. That's what I am pushing for. I want to be the head of something. You must serve as we serve. And then finally, the bottom is compliance. Which means you take all of those other three and you do it exactly that way. Another way of saying that is... Um, for lack of a better phrase. It's what I would call duck theology. This, this, this is duck theology. The theology is basically this. God made us in His image. We chose against God one day. God got very, very angry. And because we chose Him, He got angry at sin. And the truth is, we think He's really angry at sinner. So God's got to pour out His wrath upon us. But, Jesus stepped in between us and the wrath. He absorbed the wrath upon the cross so that now we're in. But if you want to stay in, you better behave yourself. That's duck theology. What's duck? Duck means I think I'm damnable. I am unlovable. I'm corrupt. And I've been kicked to the curb. That's duck theology. In other words, every time God comes near, you better duck and some of you grew up in a certain home that you understand what I mean. You know, when Dad came home, you flinched. Because you never knew what could happen. You never knew when things would explode. And I have to suggest that some people feel that same way about God. When God comes near, uh uh-oh. Uh-oh. Don't know what's going to happen this time. The car's going to break down because he's mad at me. How many of you, I mean, be honest for a second. Don't raise your hand. But how many of you honestly have thought when something goes wrong, it's because of your sin? Your car breaks down. Your car gets a flight. Uh, I knew it. I knew God would get back at me somehow because I did this. That's bounded set. The other way to approach it is what I call centered set. Centered set is all about direction and motion. It's about identity, and intimacy. And the idea of centered set is we are lost, but we need a Savior. And isn't it nice that God has provided a Savior? He became a Savior because He decided to hang upon a cross for us one day. And people come to Jesus at various places in life. So some are like way over here. Can you put up that? Some come at him from that angle. Some come at him from another angle. Some another angle. Some another angle. They come from all different places. Some are farther away. Some are way over here, but they're still going in that direction. So they get saved. And they're in church. And you say to them, so how are you doing? Oh, I had a hell of a day. And we're like, oh! You can't swear? Don't you know you don't swear in church? Well, they're going towards God, but they're just maybe in a different place than you are. But the issue is, are they in the centered set? And here's my point. Here's where I think you need to draw a bigger circle. Because I think too many times, we want an inner and out idea, but our circle's really small. We need to draw a bigger circle because I think there's a lot of people that God would say, they're on the journey. Here the issue is, once you get in, you're on. Once you get in in God, you're on a journey. This is what I would call the dance theology. Dance stands for He delights in us. He accepts us. He nurtures us. He celebrates us. And He embraces us. This is the kind of theology that people say it sounds too good to be true. Can I give you a clue? It is. In fact, it's better than that. But it's still true. It's not based upon your performance at all. It's based upon His performance. What He has done for you. Now, if you abide in Him, if you live in Him and let Him live in you, I can guarantee you won't stay the same. You can't stay the same if God lives in you. You will change things will drop off of you. Things will be added to you. But it's not because you necessarily work harder, it's because you have God living inside of you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And like me, many of you have have spent probably too much of your time in the ditch. We talked about that several weeks ago. You, You spent too much time, so much time that you begin to label your life by the name of the ditch. I am anxiety. I am fear. I am liar. I am evil. I am bad. But the whole time, the father is running ahead saying, no, you're wrong. You are beloved. You are treasured. You are special to me. You're my beloved daughter. You're my son whom I'm proud of. Sometime back I met with a man I was talking to him about some struggles in my own life, things I felt bad about from my past, things I didn't feel like I could get over, and I went through the whole litany. And I finished that conversation by saying, so the bottom line is, I, I just, I'm evil. I'm evil. God would be better off taking lightning and just incinerating me and be done with it. And he sat there for a minute and then he almost... It wasn't a giggle, it was almost like a snort. He said, can I tell you how I see this whole story? And he took every part of the story that I had told him and he turned the whole thing around. I mean, I said, that's not true. He goes, no, that is true. That's just not how you see it. This is how God sees it. And I realized that in my life, anything that you've dealt with, anything that you've dealt with at all, with which you have labeled yourself, you've probably labeled yourself wrong if you haven't given yourself the label that God has given you. It's not about performance. It's staying so close to Him that this other stuff that's called fruit is the natural outflow. Fruitfulness will be there as long as you stay there. Membership in God's family doesn't change. Maturity does. Membership never changes. So this chapter is about becoming a member. Chapter 15 of John is about becoming a member in God's family. It's about being grafted in. It's about being adopted into His family. And once you're adopted in, you will begin to mature. You will change. That's His promise. That's growth and motion on the journey. One of the authors that I love uh, over the years, uh, maybe some of you have even read him, His name is Gordon Fee. Gordon Fee was a professor out at Gordon-Conwell. He he wrote a thick volume on 1 Corinthians. I mean, this is like that thick volume on 1 Corinthians. Uh, He's an amazing man. His work on the Holy Spirit has made him known as an expert on pneumatology. Wouldn't you like that to be your label in life? I'm an expert on the Holy Spirit. But that's what he's known for. But here's what Gordon Fee says about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. He says this. He says, The people of Israel, the people that followed God in the wilderness, were known by people all around the area. The whole world knew them as the people of His presence. The people of His presence. The only thing that set them apart from everybody else was God's presence. And God says, I'm living in you. Isn't that what you really want in life is to know the presence of God? To know it like never before? And yet God, the Holy Spirit, lives in you. Isn't it interesting that this chapter ends, the very last verse, verse 26 I think it is, ends with Him now introducing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This can't happen without the Holy Spirit. Our, our lives might feel like at times like we're living in the ditch. But the truth is, we're moving. Sometimes it feels like a couple steps back and one forward, but we're still moving, we're still pointed towards Him. So, here's my point. Two weeks ago, we dedicated some kiddos, uh, which is important because as families, we need to know. We need the help of God. We baptized some folks, which is equally important. We need to know that there is a transition point in our lives where we no longer follow ourselves, we follow God. And then we took in some members. A step of maturity, a step of commitment. All of that's important. But I want to suggest to you that dedications and baptism and membership don't change you at all. In fact, reading your Bible and prayer and coming to church and singing the songs don't change you at all. They position you for change, but they don't change you. They give you a place where maybe if you have a heart to, you can change, but they don't automatically change you. I had an Uncle Johnny. uh, I don't think Karen ever met him, did you? No. Uncle Johnny studied to be a Catholic priest. He went for years to seminary and something happened that never was talked about in our family. Whatever it was, it was shameful. We could never talk about it. Uncle Johnny was kicked out of the priesthood. But Uncle Johnny knew the Bible. He studied the Bible like no one I've ever met. But he studied the Bible in order to be able to beat you at any discussion about the Bible. He loved nothing more than when my dad and mom would come over and sit down at his table and he could show them that he knew more about the Bible than they did and that they were stupid compared to him so that anything he thought had to be right, anything they thought had to be wrong. Uncle Johnny read the Bible daily. Long portions of it. But he was the most bitter, angry man I have ever met. Reading the Bible didn't change him at all. It had the potential to change him, but he didn't let it. That's a choice that he made. In the same way, all of these things that we do position us for change if we have a heart towards God. So every time we come together and gather together here as one family in God, Every time we sing of God's worth and majesty, and we take time to open His Word and read it, we are believing God for change because we have a heart for Him, because He dwells in us and we dwell in Him. That's what we want in this life. One moment from God, one moment in His presence, can do more to change us than a lifetime of counseling. I have had. One encounter with God. One brief encounter where I heard Him say something that changed everything for me. And the same can be true for you. Things that you've been struggling with forever. It's not about your position in God. That's already been established. It's about you knowing how established you really are. It's about you realizing how much worth He has placed upon you. So, with that kind of as the background, I want you to listen to what I read. I'm going to actually read the verses out of John chapter fifteen, but I want you to listen to them. With that as your mindset, it's about the worth that God has put upon you. Listen to this: I am the vine; you are the branches. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy May be full. You are my friends. No longer do I call you servants. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and your fruit will remain. We read these like commands when the truth is they're promises. They're promises that because God lives in you, you're going to have fruit in your life. I've lived with many of you long enough to see fruit in your life. Some of you have worked so hard. You have fought against sin. You've become valiant warriors for righteousness. But it's really easy to go over the line and think it's all based upon how well I perform today. And that's not what it's about at all. It's about abiding in Him. Staying close to Jesus. If you have heard the good news that Jesus Christ sent from the Father has come as your Savior, and you received that good news into your heart, you accepted it as being true, and you asked God into your heart, then you're in Him. You're in. And you're on. The journey sometimes is up and down. It's not always smooth. But you're still in. And you will always be in because you're His son or His daughter. Paul says in Ephesians 4, walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. We read that like He's saying, come on, get your life together. Walk worthy. But that's not what He's saying. He's saying, He has made you a prince. He's made you a princess. You need to realize who you are. And then walk with that as your position. I almost said walk with your head high. I didn't because I thought some of you are going to take that wrong. You're going to say, oh, it's an issue of pride. No, it's not pride. It's saying I know who I am in God. And I'm going to walk that way. I am His chosen. He appointed me. Out of all people on earth, why would He pick me? I don't know, but He did. And He picked you. So when He says walk worthy, He says You already are a son. You're already a daughter. You're a saint. You're a child of the Most High God. Walk with that position in mind and you'll see it will be a worthy walk. So walking worthy is not about gaining identity. It's not about working harder and more. It's about being a reflection of who I really am in God. Now, Two Monday, I think it's two Monday nights ago, uh, I was laying in bed praying. Um, Unless you think I'm overly spiritual, I was actually praying that God would help me to go to sleep. Um, I have a hard time going to sleep most nights. Uh, But I was praying, and in the middle of that prayer time, I felt like God spoke something to me, and I don't normally do this. I almost never do. When God speaks to me at night, I'm laying in bed. Most often I think, oh, I'll remember it tomorrow, and then I never remember it. But this one felt so significant that I got up and I actually wrote it down. I sent it to myself as an email, actually. Um, That's how I keep notes. Um, Some churches, uh, some of you guys know churches, that at the beginning of every year in January, they set a theme for their church for that year. Like it might be going for heaven in seven, something like that. You know, some kind of theme that rhymes Uh, we don't do that. I I don't judge that at all. I honor that. I think, okay, if that's the word that God has given to you, good, God bless you, go for it. I've just never done that. But this time, I felt the Lord speak something to me for 2017. And it basically was this. It doesn't rhyme, by the way. Uh, I would have had to get together with my daughter and wife to do that. Basically, I felt like he said two things to me. He said, abiding is not a command. It's an invitation. And I felt like God's inviting you in 2017 to an abiding life where it's no longer about how well things are going for you or your family because you're judging everything based upon that. It's whether or not you're in Him. That's how you judge life. Are you in Him? Maybe things aren't going as well as you think they should for your marriage, for your family, for your children, for your job. Are you in Him? Abiding as an invitation, not a command. And then I felt like he said, 2017 is a year of invitation. You can choose to abide or you can continue to hide. So I felt like God put in front of me two choices for this year, and I have a choice every day. I can either abide or I can hide. I can hide behind the fig leaves that try to cover me up because I feel like in myself I'm too shameful. I'm unworthy or I can choose to abide in Him and find my identity in Him. And that's an invitation that I felt like was for me specifically, but I also felt like it was for you. So this morning, what I want to do is I'm going to ask you if you would bow your heads. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the invitation. That you are by God's ever-increasing grace, going to walk with Him and abide in Him rather than to hide from Him and hide from others. I want you just take a moment. I know my words are inadequate, but I felt such stirring from the Lord that too many of us have spent our lives hiding. We put on masks and shells and try to pretend to be something that we're not. When he is saying, if you will abide in him, that's not only good enough, that's phenomenal. That's amazing. Have you failed? Yes, you failed. Have you tripped up? Yes, you've tripped up. So what? Keep going. You're in him. This isn't about your perfect performance record. This isn't getting a red star from God. You already have that. It's called the blood of Jesus Christ. It's time to stop hiding. And to learn to live abiding in Him. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask the leaders, uh, the elders of the church and Pastor John, April, if they want to come on up and spread across the front. I'm going to give you an opportunity. You guys can do that now. I'm going to give you an opportunity to come up for prayer. And just by coming up, it's not because I'm expecting necessarily that they will have a prophetic word for you or anything like that. They might. But in coming up, you're saying, I am making a choice today. I am writing into my Bible that on February 5th, February 5th, 2017 I'm making a choice by the grace of God I'm going to abide in him I'm no longer going to do this just by my own strength it's going to be his grace it's going to be the work of the Holy Spirit that's going to do it and you come up and you're going to let these leaders pray for you you're saying this is my choice today here I stand I stand in him my identity is in him And please, please, I beg you, don't make this a popularity contest of who prays for you. Look at these people. Look at them. Every one of them is weak. Every one of them is human and frail. None of them are perfect. But it's not about them. It's about Him. He chooses to work through frail, weak vessels. And isn't that the wonder of the gospel? That He chose you. So, if your answer to the invitation is yes, I invite you to come and just let these leaders to pray for you. The music will pray quietly. If you can't stay, for whatever reason I understand, I'm going to ask that you would leave quietly through the doors and keep your talking to a low roar in the foyer. Low roar. Low, low roar so that these folks can pray we'll keep the music playing but it'll be quiet so that actually you can hear what's being prayed over you so if your answer is yes i need this like never before i need to abide in him i invite you to say yes to him by coming forward Jesus, si te la basite, yo